simple guys, those who know me will clearly be able to testify, but I think our world is filled with some amazing things that some of us find it really impossible to get our heads around. So, for example, for me, and again, this just reflects something of my own sort of background and academic training, radio, radio signals. How does that work? If, if I had a radio here, I, I could keep tuning across. I don't know how many radio stations we would pick up, 20, 30, 40, 50, or more. Where does it all come from? Where are these radio waves? And you could be over there, and you could be over there, and you have your radios, and it picks up radio waves. And Wi-Fi. Now, already some of you, at the beginning of this service, and we're not going to ask the result of the men's single final yet, but some of you know, because you have been accessing your Wi-Fi on your phones. And again, that just staggers me. Apparently, it is the same technology as radio waves. It's just at a much higher frequency. It's at 2.4 gigahertz. By the way, I, I don't have a clue what that means. Uh, but it's just uh, amazing, and, and you could be getting your texts from the BBC or, or receiving WhatsApps from your friends or messaging someone else or checking on your Facebook status, and it's all coming in, and I'm thinking, where does it come from? It's just, to me, amazing. And there are many such things, and maybe there are things that you go, I just don't get that. I don't understand how that works. But could I say, of all the amazing things I have come across, the hardest to really understand is this. It's grace. Amazing grace. You see, we think we know what it is. We think we can explain it. We even try and borrow examples from our own experience in an attempt to illustrate it. But they always come up short. We never really feel we've We've grasped or described the full implications of what that single word, grace, really means. Basically, you see, to understand what God's grace really means will take an eternity of contemplation and gratitude. But Jonah thought he knew something about grace and thought he knew something about the God from whom it comes. So when God commissions Jonah to go to Nineveh and warn the people there about their behavior, he thought that this might fit into that grace category. You know, it was the sort of thing God was known to do. To Jonah, this meant that wicked, violent, oppressive people might get away from the judgment that they really deserved. And he didn't like grace. It didn't seem fair. It didn't seem right. It seemed to go against what would help God's people. And so he runs away in the opposite direction to where Nineveh was in an effort to thwart God's gracious plan. And if truth be known, I think many of us here struggle in the same way. We like to speak highly of grace. It's one of Charlotte Chapel's favorite words. And we think we've got some sort of handle on the whole idea, but in reality, we struggle with what we see going on in God's world. 
the wicked flourish. There's no shame. What was unthinkable a generation ago has now worked its way into the center of our culture. And instinctively, we get angry, wanting God to vindicate us and blast those who oppose our views. And grace has somehow got lost along the way. That's why this book of Jonah makes such essential reading for Christians in today's society. It subtly, it ironically, it satirically challenges our assumptions. As it were, it holds up a mirror to us, allowing us to have a glimpse of our distorted understanding of grace. Now, we saw last week that there's a very deliberate shape to this book. There it is on screen. Um, many commentators have a variety of ways that they break this uh, book down. I was saying last week I, I, I like the simplicity of Tim Keller's division here because I, I want you to understand that there is, this is a very deliberate book. It's not just something that's thrown together. It is done with profound and amazing skill and ingenuity. I said last week it comes with a skill far greater than contemporary literature. Uh, even though it was written about 2,700 years uh, ago. There is a beauty, there is a symmetry to this particular book. And last week, when we came to the end of that first message, we left Jonah sinking in the sea after the pagan sailors threw him in, despite their best efforts to save him. And what we're going to do this evening is we're going to be looking at three responses that help us understand more, more about grace and how we respond to it. Firstly, we're going to be looking at that of Jonah's and then the Ninevites, and finally, that of God's. So let's start with how Jonah responded. How Jonah responded. We notice he responded with the mind. Many commentators tell us it's, it's wonderful, isn't it, that Jonah's life was turned around, that he repented of his sin when he was in the belly of that big fish, and he turned to God, and he had a second chance to serve him. Now, whilst this is true in some small measure, I want to suggest that Jonah's repentance is far from complete, and that he still doesn't have a full view of what God's grace really means. Let me give you my reasons for that. For when you read that prayer of Jonah, it's there on page 928, you, you see it laid out, it's like a psalm, it's like a poem. But when you read that, don't immediately go, oh, look at that, it, it's, a, it's a poem to God, that must be really great. Actually, look at what it is saying. First thing I notice about this is it's essentially egotistical. Just scan it through. See how many times the personal pronouns, I, me, and my, occur in, in, in that little psalm. To save you from counting, it's 25 times you'll find these words. And in this psalm, in this poem, there's actually no acknowledgement of his sin. There's no acknowledgement of his rebellion in running away from God. There's no emotion. There is no sorrow for his failures. Rather, when you read it, it's all about what he has done and how God has responded to that. It's essentially egotistical, but secondly, I notice it's lacking concern for others. 
There's no concern there for the pagan sailors who did all they could in the midst of a dreadful storm to save Jonah's life. In fact, all we get is a condemning sentence about pagans. There in verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. <laughs> Worthless. It's lacking concern for others. Thirdly, it's in the realm of the mind. What I mean by that is we have a recitation here of events. Jonah is describing a series of facts. He tells us that he virtually died as he sunk to the seabed but was rescued through his prayers. Interestingly, he never mentions the huge fish that swallowed him. But he does talk about looking to the temple in Jerusalem. And then after that little poem or psalm, the writer tells us that the fish vomited Jonah up. There are other words actually the writer could have used. Uh, but it seems he's used this word deliberately to convey a sense of disgust at Jonah's response. You see, we're not to be elated at this point in the story, but we're to be distrustful of Jonah's words and his religious showmanship. And did you notice how we're seeing the up and down theme repeated? We noticed it last week, how this uh, theme about up and down was there. We saw last week how the Lord told Jonah to rise up and go to Nineveh. Instead, we read he went down to Joppa and then down into the ship and finally down into the sea. In fact, Jonah himself picks up the theme. It's there in chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit when my life was ebbing away. I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Let me just say in passing that if we're ever to be people who act in a godly way towards this society in all its sin and failure, we need to understand what true repentance really is. For without true repentance in our lives, we'll never be able to display God's amazing grace to others. See, as long as we're satisfied, a bit like Jonah, with a smug, egotistical, tick-box Christianity, we'll never be those who can respond in grace to people who we might otherwise despise and reject. It starts with us. It starts with a true grasp of our sin. It starts with understanding that we are no better than the worst of sinners. That we stand alongside them at the foot of the cross. You see, the cross shatters our pride and arrogance. The cross fills us with gratitude, not a sense of superiority. So that's how Jonah responded. It was with the mind. But let's secondly notice how Nineveh responded. And we notice that Nineveh responded with actions. Because what happens there at the beginning of chapter 3, for the second time, the message comes to Jonah to rise up, there he is again, and go to Nineveh. And this time he does. He obeys God's command and walks a considerable distance 
to get to the very large and strategic city of Nineveh. You can see the layout on the map there. Tarshish, we think, probably was the uh, southern tip of Spain. He was trying to get there, but then uh, he goes to Nineveh. In fact, he goes as slowly as he can. The, the Hebrew word seems to indicate that he walked that. And that's a massive journey. You don't go in a straight line for that. You have to go uh, up and around the, the Fertile Crescent uh, that is there. So he walks to the center of that city and he begins proclaiming the message that God gave him. And that message is there in the second part of verse 4. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's just five words. And it actually, it may well be that that wasn't a summary. You may say, oh, well, the writer was just summarizing what Jonah was saying. No, probably, actually, that was the whole thing. It was just this five-word message. You see, we still get the sense that Jonah doesn't want to encourage them to do anything. He's just speaking the words he had to. God's going to judge you. God's going to judge you. God's going to, I, I, he felt, well, I'm obeying God, I'm doing my duty, uh, and that's it. Incidentally, when Jonah repeats God's message that the city will be overthrown, there's a clever ambiguity actually about that word overthrown. It can mean destruction, or it can have the sense of turning something upside down, of reversing something, of reforming something. And that's what seems to happen. It wasn't destruction, rather it was that turning upside down of the city, of reforming it. Because in verse 5 we read this. The Ninevites believed God. Astounding. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now this really is miraculous. Although historians tell us that in the few years preceding this, Nineveh had known a famine, and it had known a solar eclipse, and it had known a civic uprising, this is still remarkable. It's even been suggested that Jonah had emerged from this huge fish with bleached hair and skin. Now, why some folks say this is because there have been one or two other incidents of people being swallowed whole by a whale and then surviving. Uh, but the thing that everyone noticed was the, whatever the particular acid in the whale's uh, belly bleached that person completely. And that may have been what Jonah looked like, which would have been pretty terrifying anyway when he came to do his preaching. This would have had a dramatic effect upon the listeners. But the point is this, whatever the background that God had sovereignly arranged, this repentance results in actions. And nowhere is this more clearly seen than in the actions of the ruler of Nineveh, which stands actually in direct contrast to the way that Jonah responded. We read this in verses 6 to 9. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet re relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. 
By the way, did you notice again the repetition of rising up and then sitting down in the dust? This is different from Jonah's response. Here's a repentance that results in actions rather than pious-sounding religious phrases that we got from Jonah. Here's a repentance that drives the people to turn away from what they were doing and to humble themselves, whatever their position in life. In fact, this is a repentance commended by Jesus himself when he's talking about the response of those who were listening to his preaching and weren't responding to his preaching. We read this in Luke 11:32. Jesus says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, let me make the observation that when the implications of grace begin to capture our hearts, when we see how foul and sinful we are, and yet when we understand how merciful the Lord is, then there will be a genuine repentance that moves us to do something about the sin, about the selfishness, about the critical attitudes that have gripped our lives like the seaweed was wrapped around Jonah's head. We'll turn away from that superior criticism of those who are different to us. We'll stop avoiding the neighbors and colleagues whose lifestyles we struggle with. We'll get serious in prayer, asking God to change our culturally shaped hearts into Christ-shaped hearts. But having said all that, I still need to say that the writer wants us to see that even this response was incomplete. You may have said, well, that's great, that's brilliant, that's that, the that's that peak of this book. No, it isn't, it's incomplete. It went far, but it didn't go far enough. For whereas we're told at the end of chapter 1 that the pagan sailors trusted the Lord, uh, just if you've got your Bible open, go to verse 16 there of chapter 1, that this, the men, that's the pagan sailors, greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. Do you notice the Lord there is spelled in capital letters? That is when you find the word for Jehovah or Yahweh, the name of God. Uh, and they responded uh, in that way. Uh, but here, the writer uses the generic name for God. He doesn't use that special covenant name for God, Yahweh, but rather he uses that general word for God, Elohim. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed Elohim. In other words, they turned from their sins, but they didn't turn to Yahweh in faith. Their hope was in their actions rather than in the Lord's covenant promises. This was a general hope that they had rather than a specific trust. You see, there is no mention of them forsaking their own gods and idols. You see, the writer wants to point us to something more. He wants to point us to something far bigger if we're ever to be people of grace. So we've seen how Jonah responded, it was with the mind. We've seen how the Ninevites responded, it, it was with action. Thirdly, let's see how God responded, and we will see that it was with compassion. God responded with compassion. 
Now, look, forgive me. I know it is warm, certainly relatively warm for Edinburgh. Um, but I just need to get a bit technical if we are to grasp the point the writer is making. Now, if you have a translation other than an NIV, you may not see what is going on here. Uh, actually, the key verse is chapter 3, verse 9. Let me just outline this to you. So, in chapter 3, verse 9, if you have the authorized version, also known as King James Version, it translates it like this. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Some of you might use the ESV, the English Standard Version, which says this. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Or if you have the NIV, both the uh, 84 version and the uh, 2011 version that we read from, it says this. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now what's the difference? It's the word compassion. In the NIV, it has compassion, but it doesn't have it in the other translations. And, and it's not as if they're, at this point, working from a different Hebrew text. It's the same words. So how did that get there? How, how is it translated uh, with compassion in our version? Basically, it's because although the writer is contrasting and this is still a bit technical, but you know, he keeps doing this contrasting stuff. He's contrasting the way the Ninevites repented and turned from their actions with the way that God relented or turned from his action. He didn't repeat the same word for relented or repented. They are different words. You would have expected him to use the same word because he was trying to do that mirror in, that symmetry. But no, he uses a different word. And the word used for what God did in its context, has the sense of turning towards another in compassion. There's no, as it were, sense of turning away from sin, which for God would have been completely inappropriate. Now, look, some of you here may be Hebrew scholars, and there's probably a lot more that you'd want to say. But for now, we need to grasp that God's reaction to rebels is one that engages the heart. See, Jonah's response was about the mind. The Ninevites' response was about the will. But God's response is about his heart. It's his very character. And with this, we are getting far closer to the nature of grace that should be reflected in each of God's children. See, our instinctive response to people who are rebelling against God, who are doing their own thing and going their own way, should be one that primarily, instinctively goes out to them in compassion and mercy. Instinctively. This doesn't mean that we ignore the sin. It doesn't mean that we justify wicked behavior. But rather, we instinctively long for that person to know forgiveness and new life and joy, and overflowing mercy. And I have to say, I don't think that's always my immediate response. don't know about you. But I fail in this area. I see something, I read something, I, I, and my instinct is, ah, Lord, judge them. And that's not grace. 
and I failed. And maybe you can struggle in that way. You see, already in this passage, there have been wonderful echoes of God's mercy. Listen to Jonah as he complains about the pagans. We noted it there, verse 8 of chapter 2. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. And whereas when Jonah was saying this, his emphasis was upon the foolishness of such behavior, what is striking is that he acknowledges that God's grace extends to such folk. In fact, the Hebrew word used here for God's love is hesed. That's the word that's translated in the New Testament as grace. It's as if this wonderful declaration has slipped through Jonah's defenses without him really coming to terms with it. God shows grace to undeserving pagans like you, like me. And then Jonah goes on to say something else that has added significance. It's there in the second half of verse 9 in chapter 2. He said, I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Actually, that word salvation in the Hebrew is Yeshua. It's the word from which we get the name Jesus. Now, Jonah wouldn't have had the idea that he was pointing forward to the promised Messiah. But as we know, Yeshua, Jesus, was born about 750 years later to bring salvation and rescue to pagans and rebels all around the globe through his sacrificial death on the cross and his glorious resurrection from the dead. This is what Jesus has done. Salvation comes from the Lord. Yeshua comes from the Lord. Yes, he does. And Yeshua is not just a concept. Yeshua is a person. It is Jesus, the one full of grace and mercy. And actually then, from this side of the cross, we also see added significance to what Jonah was to proclaim. There in verse 2 of chapter 3, he's told, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And, and that word for message, again, forgive me, it's technical, but in the Septuagint translation, the Septuagint was where about 200 BC, they took the Hebrew and they translated it into Greek. The Greek translation of that word for message is the Greek word kerugma. What if you know anything about New Testament Greek? You will know that's the word that means the gospel. The gospel. And, and, and from this side, as it were, of the cross, we're saying, I see the significance of that. He was to go and proclaim to them the good news. The good news is that God is a God who is gracious, who takes rubbish people and can turn their lives around them. I'm all for recycling. Do you know the greatest recycler of all is our sovereign God. He takes rubbish and he makes it into something precious. He adopts rubbish people like us into his family by his grace. And although this technical stuff might have had your head spinning, if you take one thing away from this, look, it's this. God is a God of grace and mercy extended to even the most desperate and wicked of people. And could I say, as his people, this should be our reaction to those that we hear about or come into contact with, whose lifestyles might shock us or alarm us. There should be an instinctive reaching out in grace, not a thrashing out in judgment. 
I want to close with a fairly lengthy illustration. For, forgive me, I'm going to quote at length, but it is worth it. It's concerning uh, a lady, she's alive today, called Rosaria Butterfield. That's her. Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured professor of English at Syracuse University in the States and served in the English department and the women, women's study programs there. Now, I'm quoting from her. This is what she wrote. This is her story. She said, I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against queers like me. To do this, I would need to read the one book that had, in my estimation, gotten so many people off track, the Bible. While on the lookout for some Bible scholar to aid me in my research, I launched my first attack on the unholy trinity of Jesus, Republican politics, and patriarchy in the form of an article in the local newspaper about promise keepers. It was 1997. The article generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail, one for fan mail. But one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you are right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond to it, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the recycling bin and put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded a response. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches. That Christians who mocked me on Gay Pride Day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was clear as blue sky. That is not what Ken did. He did not mock. He engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this would be good for my research. Something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floy, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. I started reading the Bible. 
I read The Way a Glutton Devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations, while all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Conspicuous with my butch haircut, I reminded myself of I came to meet God, not fit in. The image that came in like waves of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the costs. And I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved. But the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother. Why did that happen? How did that happen? Because of grace. Because of grace. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be people of grace and love and mercy and acceptance. People who've grasped something of the character of God that instinctively, graciously, mercifully goes out because actually it went out towards me. It went out towards you, a rebel, vile, hell-deserving rebel, but saved by grace. This is the God we serve. This is the God we want to reflect. Let's pray.